All right, everyone. So good to see all of you. Reel it in. Reel it in. Got things to do today. Like preach to you for 15 minutes like I always do. Man, it's so good to see all of you. I also said something that was not true last week. You know, Chelsea is never hard on me around my sermons. Usually she's extremely gracious. And she was, she was a little hard on me last week about the length of my sermon, unnecessary tangents. Um, and then I realized in staff meeting that it all came down to one thing, that I made a wrong statement about Lord of the Rings. Um, and she was offended that I didn't like the movies because she likes the new TV show, which I'm offended by. Um, but then the whole staff ganged up on me and told me that Sam is not tall. I said he was tall. And see, this is, I'm going to double down a little bit. Um, he may not be tall, but when you read a book rather than watch a show, the imagination allows you to shape the character. So in my sanctified imagination, Sam is taller than the rest of the hobbits. I feel like Tolkien's a little bit ambiguous about his height. We know he's strong. I just read tall into that. Forgive me. I'm sorry for being kind of wrong. <laughs> Chelsea, I'm going to reel in those unnecessary side expeditions today. Only text. I'm going to read the text. We're going to break up in prayer groups and the service will be over. And then I'm going to be giving free tattoos in my office for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> uh, man, it's so good to see all of you. Uh, we're going to continue in our series on the kingdom of grace. Um, today we're going we're gonna to wrap up um, in the third message the, the rest of the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes really are split into into two sections. The, the first four really speak of, of our emptiness, our inability to bring anything to the plate. It's all about blessed are the needy. Blessed are those that recognize that they need help. But the, the second set of Beatitudes is the outcome of allowing Jesus to be that help, to be that fill. Christ giving us himself and now we have the ability to be poured out. So blessed are the needy, but also blessed are the poured out. For as we show mercy, we receive mercy. As we, as we uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, we find satisfaction. As, as we um, are pure in heart, we see God. As we become peacemakers, uh, we become children of God. And I think that the, the power of these passages uh, remind us that, first of all, the Beatitudes are for people that are in bad situations, not for people with good attitudes. That the keynote of the kingdom is meant to shoot a hole in the heart of self-sufficiency. That it's meant to drive us to a dependency upon a God who actually cares. A God who is not content to exist without us. A God who loves you on your worst day. I, 
I was struck by these verses. Let's read through them together. We're going to cover 7 through 12. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus closes with a direct statement to his disciples. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Not that you're suffering. That's not what he's saying. He's saying rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad that your identification is with me in spite of the difficulty that you're in. Rejoice and be glad that I am actually with you in the middle of that difficulty. I think we have to ask the question when it comes to what does it mean to live out the kingdom of God? We have to ask the question, what is morality? Because often the Sermon on the Mount is turned into a a purely ethical exercise of what it means to live a virtuous life. That was Tolstoy's approach to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, That's been the approach of many, and I think that Christians often fall into that trapping. It becomes a document about what we ought to do and, and what we ought not to do. It becomes this sort of defining document for behavior modification. And yet, as I shared the first week, the problem is is that the impossibility of the Sermon on the Mount, apart from the only one who can keep it dwelling within us as we cast ourselves in dependence upon him, is what leads to so much exhaustion in the church and why so many people abandon the faith. Because we can't climb our way out of the problems that we're in. You're not going to be able to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and become perfect. For what did Jesus say? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's impossible. That's exactly the point of the statement to drive us back to that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's focus as he recounts the teachings of Jesus is first of all, Morality is about having a heart. It's about showing mercy. Twice in this gospel, Jesus cites Hosea 6.6, I want mercy and not sacrifice. Both in chapter 9 and again in chapter 12. There is a morality, I would argue, that hardens, that makes one more severe toward others rather than making you in a vessel of grace. There's a morality that allows you to feel like you are actually doing better than those around you. And I think that that kind of morality is seen in the church, like right now, like never before. There is this new kind of stance or posture within the church that it's kind of an us against that secular age that is turning God's kingdom upside down on its head. That, that that the world is so diametrically opposed to Jesus, to his, to his reality, 
to his demands that the only thing we can do is fight. But as Rene Girard brilliantly stated, actually it wasn't Rene Girard, I'm sorry, it was actually uh, Jacques Ellul. Always mix. I spent so much time reading these two men for the last three years that they kind of have become one person for me. But Jacques Ellul wrote in 1948 in um, presence, uh, Christian Presence in the Modern Age. He says that the church cannot afford to play the role of the wolf. The world is always pushing the idea that we need to be wolves, aggressive, to take what is ours. No. The role of the Christian is to continue to play the role of the sacrificial lamb. That we are to point people to Jesus by reflecting his willingness to lay down his life for the very people that hated him. And so we have right now in this particular moment, especially in America, a polarization in our country and, and even, I would argue, a, politic, um, a politicizing of our faith that is created an us-against-them mentality. But the moment you created them, those people are my problem, is the moment you actually short-circuit the gospel. Because the whole reason we exist on this earth after we have given our lives to Jesus is that we might be conduits of grace to the very people that want nothing to do with them. That it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. That it, there should be something supernaturally natural about our lives reflected in, in the world. And that, that evidence is not us going out and trying to do signs and wonders. For there is no greater miracle than the ability to maintain a posture of mercy in an age of victimization and judgment. What I love about these passages is that Jesus shows us what he expects the children of his kingdom to act like. And the beautiful reality is, is that our ability to act like Jesus wants us to act is dependent upon his presence in our lives. This is what Paul said. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. Those first four Beatitudes, the emptying, the laying our lives down at his feet as a living sacrifice, that now we can be filled with his spirit. And this is what the spirit manifests. This is the litmus test of whether or not you're truly walking with Jesus. It's not going to be defined by the, your own sense of justification due to your own moral grid that allows you to feel all right in the world. I think that um, it's easy to see how damaging the Sermon on the Mount is if we don't understand its purpose. I, I wrote this in the introduction to my book. I said, we can no more live what he demands than he can accept how we live. We are damned without the cross, for I can no more be perfect than Jesus can sin. And yet we hammer on people with its impossible demands, attempting to externalize it when the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. As one example, and I could give many, one may practice nonviolence, but Jesus said, anger at another is murder. For me, there isn't a day that goes by right now where I haven't killed someone, even someone I love. You might be asking, what about righteous indignation? Yes, but our mixture means that righteousness and our anger cannot be sustained. 
We cannot hold our anger the way that God does. This is why the scripture warns us, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give a foothold to the devil. Man, we live in an anxious age and there is a lot of anger under the surface. And what the world needs right now more than ever in the church is to see a peaceful presence, a calmness in the midst of the storm that would be an invitation for others to come out of that storm. Don't you agree? So let's break down these Beatitudes because I'm not going to go on a bunch of rabbit trails to prove to Chelsea that I can do it. I did just see this movie the other... No, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, let's consider first the triumph of mercy. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I, I, I love to connect this passage to that powerful passage in James chapter 2, a passage that I would argue um, kind of pushes back. I love Martin Luther. Early Luther, I mean, that's my jam. The Heidelberg Disputation is darn near perfect document. But Luther was wrong when he felt that the book of James threatened the reality of grace. And I think this passage right here is one of the great pictures of how well James actually understood grace and that James was never saying that we are saved by what we do. He was saying our salvation is evidenced by how the Spirit works through us. He's saying it, it, the Christian life is not, I put my faith in Jesus and then everything just goes on as it was. It should revolutionize the person's life because they have come to the end of themselves and now have put their trust in a Christ who has filled them with his spirit. And not that their life is gonna be perfect. In fact, it's gonna be, as I often say every week, that it will be mixture. That even those who are born again and filled with the Spirit, everything we do is mixture because we live in sinful worlds and sinful bodies with sinful minds. And though Jesus has dealt with sin once and for all, it's still at play. It's forgiven, but it still wreaks havoc. That's the reality. But James gives us an insight. I actually think that the key to the Christian life is not sinning less. It's about loving more. If you actually loved more, you would sin less. That's why Rene Girard, he actually did say this, not a little, that if every Christian turned the other cheek, there would be no, or because if every person turned the other cheek, there would be no cheeks to slap. I think that that is a profound and simple statement. But unfortunately, sin means that we are quick to defend, quick to hit back, quick to attack, quick to judge. James says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Notice that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I want to just make a, a statement that maybe you guys haven't thought through, but it, I think is a very important one. Judgment, uh, forgiveness, wrath are not a part of God's essential character. They are the outcome of his character violated. God is a forgiving God because he is a God of love. Mercy triumphs over judgment because God is just. And all we mean by that is that God is perfect. There's no, there's no darkness in him. There's no shadow of turning. What he does is right. 
But when that rightness is violated, that is what brings out of him. He isn't in this, the core of his being judgmental. He isn't in the core of his being angry. That's not, he doesn't, it's not like us as humans who just have anger issues. His anger is always right because he hates sin because it robs him of what he loves which is people. That's why I always say that wrath is nothing more than God's love violated. His love burns fiercely against all that is unlovely in the beloved, which is you. Well, judgment is something that I think is really problematic right now in the church. Um, Not just in the church, but actually culturally. And sadly, the church often looks like some weird kind of caricature of the culture. It's like we kind of, we we try our best to like sanctify the culture and then present to one another, you know, some weird kind of paltry imitation. Uh, you know, there's, it's, it's, a sad, it's a sad thing when we're shaped more by the voices of the day than we are by the scripture. And in the, in the eternal truth of the very one that the scripture points us to, which is Jesus himself. But judgment is... is is at the, at the center of public discourse right now. Forgiveness is not at the center of public discourse. Mercy, for sure, is not at the center of public discourse. No, it is blame. It is victimization. It is the demand for justice. And yes, as important as justice is, we live in an age of grace, and we always want justice for everyone but ourselves. Isn't that true? Our capacity for judgment toward others with the simultaneous justification of ourselves is deeply troubling. I always say that we abuse grace in ourselves and refuse it for others. It's like, I want justice. (laughs) And we're like, well, what about what you did? I'm not talking about that right now. I'm demanding it for this situation. Isn't that, I mean... Think about the public discourse when we went through all of the, the upheaval during COVID around, around racial reconciliation. There was a very different tone in 2020 than there was in the civil rights movement. I, I didn't sense much of the, the heart of MLK <laughs> happening, which was a passive resistance driven by an understanding of the gospel being played out in everyday life. The symbol was not a raised fist. And just keep in mind that the raised fist has always been a, and I'm not here to talk about the ideologies behind the raised fist, but the raised fist literally is a symbol of of uprising against what is viewed as oppression. Jesus didn't tell us to rise up against our oppressors. He told us to love them. And the only thing you do with a closed fist is punch. And Jesus presented to us an open hand that's wounded. It's a very different reality. It's funny, I looked through the pictures of Martin Luther King. I've never found a picture of him with a raised fist. I, I saw him with a, with a pointed finger, an open hand. Gandhi's the same. It's fascinating that, um, that the raised fist, you know the raised fist is not just a symbol of Black Lives Matters movement. It was first utilized by the socialist movement, communist movements, early, really popularized in the early 20th century um, by 
by communist regimes in, in, as communism began to take over um, Europe and move through the Eastern Bloc, there was always the symbol. The first time it was used in the poster was actually in the Spanish Revolution um, in, in, in Spain during the, like, 19, what was that, 1930s, 40s, and it was, it was a sign of, this, of a socialist party rising up against the dictatorship. It's funny, uh, George Orwell actually joined that, that fight only to become deeply troubled by the fact that the moment they overturned that dictator, it was actually going to create something even more evil, and that's why he wrote Animal Farm, <laughs> is to show that as long as there are human beings, somebody will take advantage of the system. I wish he would have just called it what Christians have always called it, sin, <laughs> but the fact is, is that the, the, the clenched fist is a symbol also not only used by Black Lives Matter's movement today, but it's also used by the white nationalist movement. Because everybody sees themselves as oppressed, don't they? And the only way to deal with those people that threaten us is to come out swinging. But what does Jesus tell us to do? We can't afford to be wolves. We must be sheep. And sheep are meant to be sacrificed. We are to be a picture of God's sacrifice to the world. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I like how James points out that when we live with a spirit of judgment, when we're consistently looking around at the people around us and thinking that they're responsible for the pain that I feel, this is what we call the scapegoat mechanism. There's always a reason why we are the way that we are. It's one of the unfortunate aspects of pop psychology that turns existence into self-understanding. We have to understand why we are the way we are, um, but psychology is meant to help us work through trauma, but it is a damaging thing when it's meant to help us put the blame on anybody but ourselves. When I look at my own childhood and look at the trauma that I've experienced, one of the things that I did in my book was, is Jesus, give me the, the ability to see the good even in those that hurt me the most and help me to see how I participated in the dynamic that was so hurtful, even when I was a child. Give me a gracious eye. Help me to see people and the beauty in them. Help me to understand that we don't know where people have come from, that there's a reason why people are hurting around us, that there's a story, that every person you see on the street, I think there's a woman sleeping right now outside our door. That's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's son. I'm not sure. All I saw was hair out. I shouldn't say who or what. It's just someone, and it's somebody's kid. That one day, that, that, that child at one time was just like all of us playing, nursing, a child, innocent. And the world has come down and oppressed that person until they collapse under its pressure and can no longer function in the realm of what we call normal living. There are many that come to Door of Hope, that call this home, that understand that world well. Because Door of Hope has always been a place where we say, it is the people that recognize they need help that are the children of the kingdom. And you can talk to some friends here who know exactly what it's like 
to listen to the lies of the world until they find themselves possessing nothing on the street, hurting. And you notice that our judgment, right now, 76% of Portland proper thinks the number one problem in our city is homelessness. And I would agree, it is a problem. But what I, what I would be really interested in is what does that 76% want done with the homeless? Because if we're honest, what we want is it to go away. We don't want garbage in our streets. We don't want tent cities. And I have lots of reasons why I don't want tent cities. I love my city. I remember when Portland was the cleanest city, the greenest city. It's a sad and heartbreaking thing. And yes, there's all kinds of bad politics and, and unfortunate realities and weak leadership and, and just upside down. You know what the idea is? If we just let people stay wherever they want, we're being merciful. You're not being merciful. You're just finding a way to kick the can down the road so that you don't have to care about that person. But see, the moment I critique the city council member for bad policies, I'm immediately confronted. It's immediately, like, start getting angry. They're making bad decisions. We need more police officers. We need this. And I'm like, I'm, I'm raging. But then I ask myself, what am I doing to change any of it other than getting upset in my house that's comfortable and warm and I have the food that I want to eat and you know maybe I'll throw out a couple of snide comments in church about the silliness of our city and the upside down progressive ideologies that seem to not be working but I don't know as I was preparing for this message I'm just like Lord I've got my people that I'm pointing to is the reason for the woes that I'm experiencing and that's just not how the gospel should work I should spend a lot more time praying for my city council members. But instead, I find myself like, that person needs to go. And that may very well be true in regards to running the city. But how quickly we will dehumanize someone when we dislike what they're doing. Isn't it true? I've, I found this. I have a really fantastic ability to create the illusion that I'm quick to forgive. Darcy's like, it's amazing how quick you can let go of things when they hurt you. And I realized that actually I, de I developed a really amazing defense mechanism as a kid that lived in a very unsafe home. Is that I'm, it's not necessarily that I'm quick to forgive. I just have the uncanny ability, if you hurt me, to pretend that you don't exist. And oh my gosh, when I realized that, I was just like, <laughs> like I was writing it and it came out I, like it was like how I am when I talk it just it just vomited out of me I didn't mean to say I didn't mean to say that that Sam was tall it just came out of me and I'm writing and all of a sudden I just write this line I am not allowing this person to exist by pretending they're not there to protect my heart and I was like Oh, Lord, can I erase that line? He's like, no, that will be the main point of your chapter, and you shall use it <laughs> as an illustration. And it's true. Isn't it, isn't it fascinating the ways that we can, we can fool ourselves into believing that we're, we're better than we actually are? We always want to think that we would have done things differently if we were in that situation, something more humane, something more moral. 
But the fact is, is we just don't understand people's stories and that's why we should tread carefully. And if we actually lived in the shadow of the cross, we would consistently be brought to an even playing field with the rest of the world where we would not allow ourselves to elevate ourselves above anyone because I know that I'm a monster without Jesus. I actually know that I'm a monster with him, but by his grace, I'm also a saint. <laughs> and what a beautiful thing. God is a God of mercy. The first thing that God says about himself in Exodus 34, verse 6, is the Lord passed before Moses. When Moses says, show me your glory, what was the first thing that God said about himself? Did he say, the Lord, the Lord, holy? No. Did he say, the Lord, the Lord, almighty? No. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He's gracious. Slow to anger. It's fascinating. We're so quick to jump to conclusions, aren't we? Some of you may struggle with a short fuse. Like anger may be your central default setting. <laughs> Some of you may be like me, conflict avoidant and upset, you know, your, your default setting is just pretend they don't exist. The fact is, is that the thing that should define us is the thing that defines God himself. And God does not say the Lord, the Lord, just, holy. It is not a God who sets himself up in this unreachable distance. It's a God who who reveals himself by coming down and meeting us. Everything God says about himself here has to do with his desire to redeem us. Everything he says about himself has to do with his relationship with human beings who have rebelled against him. You know that's true in scripture? God actually reveals nothing about himself except what, what speaks directly to the divine relationship with the created being profound reality, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Man, there is a demand for mercy that comes from the lips of Jesus that forces us to ask the question, you want to know if you're reflecting the heart of the gospel? Let me just ask you, do you find yourself this is one of the things I thought was so damaging about the isolation of the pandemic is it allowed us, it, it kept us from one another. It put us into isolation where we're confronted with news that we have no power over. And then it was amazing the amount of Christians that were like Jekyll and Hyde that like all of a sudden it's like, I know this person. And then I'm like, someone's like, have you seen, I don't use Facebook. And they're like, you should check out Facebook right now. And I was like, who is this person? It was like the freedom of the computer screen where there's no face-to-face -face interaction. It's why it's terrifying to me the thought of someone being able to push a button and send a missile <laughs> to a place that they're not. Because it's very easy to do horrible things when you are detached from the consequences of those horrible things. And for some reason, we foolishly believe that words don't hurt. <laughs> But I would argue that words are prophetic and that things we speak over our kids, things that we speak over one another, things that we 
casually just throw out into, the, into this unknown reality called the internet? Nobody understands it. Artificial intelligence, I guarantee it. <laughs> I want to just break on, on all my conspiracy theories. We, I was talking with a friend, he's like, someday it's just going to collapse because nobody even knows what it is. Where is it? I love when, when I talk with my nana um, who's 85 and has never had any computer in her life, and she's like, what is the cloud? And I was like, I'm going to explain this to her, and then I'm like, I don't know. Something, though. Something that has my thousands and thousands of unnecessary photos of meals that I put on Instagram because everybody wants to know what I ate. No, I've never done that. Maybe I've done that once, but it's silly. Don't do it. I'll judge you for it. Yes. When the Pharisees saw this, Matthew 9, verse 11 through 13, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I read these posts that Christians were, were putting up online, attacking those that did not hold their view because they were in the safety of their homes, not realizing that what we say, even privately, what we think is we're not actually trying to be private. We're trying to be public without being confronted with having to actually interact with another human being in real time. It's way easier to say harsh things in an email, in a text. How often have you regretted something that you've emailed or texted? <laughs> Jesus says, I desire mercy. I would say, I desire mercy, not judgment. I desire mercy from you, not your, not your modified behavior. I don't care, Jesus is saying, how much you read your Bible, how often you go to church, how much you pray, if none of it is leading to you loving more. I don't care. Isn't that what he says in Matthew 7? Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? Cast out demons. Do many signs and wonders. And he doesn't even deny it. He just says, I never knew you. As I've often said, the goal is, a, is not arriving, it's knowing. The goal is not sinning less, it's loving more. The demand for mercy is something that we cannot avoid because mercy triumphs over judgment. Nothing can dismantle the systems of our world like the ability to sacrificially love. What the world needs from us is grace, and grace is love without contingency. And try that on for size. It is not something that comes natural to us. It is something that has to be supernaturally birthed in us as we surrender to Jesus. I can love others because I know what it's like to be loved without contingency. I desire to live more fully for Jesus because I know what I have been forgiven of. He who's been forgiven much loves much. If only everyone understood how much they've been forgiven. And maybe you've grown up your whole life as a Christian and you don't think that maybe there's been that much to forgive because you've never wandered from the faith and yet you can't figure out why your faith isn't exciting to you anymore. Maybe it's never been that exciting. 
Maybe it's never even been your own. Maybe you're still living on the fumes of your parents' faith. I don't know. But the fact is, is that until you understand what you've been forgiven of and that you are just as guilty as I am, a guy that didn't come to faith until he was 27, a guy who spent his 20s living the, the rock and roll dream, I'm grateful. I honestly am grateful for what an unbelievably selfish, hedonistic life I lived because I know what I've been saved from. But I wish people didn't have to have a testimony to learn that. <laughs> if only we trusted scripture, we would know that whatever I'm saying of myself, it's true of you too because it's a universal problem. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. That's why the good news is such good news because the bad news is pretty bad. But notice, this isn't about just the ability to understand mercy, it's about the ability to give it. Augustine said, the merciful are those who come to the aid of the needy. What's funny is that the first four Beatitudes are driven by the understanding that we're needy. And so it's the needy giving back to the needy. It's the broken telling the broken where we can all find some bread. <laughs> what a beautiful thing. It's the triumph of mercy. What about the pure in heart? I would refer to this as the heart of the heart. In verse 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, when Israel was demanding a king and Saul had failed, Samuel was sent, the prophet Samuel was sent to David's family. And David's father presented all of the, all of the brothers of David to, to Samuel. And he's like, are there no other? He's like, well, there's what, the youngest um, you know, he's out tending the sheep and he's like, let me see him. And it says that David was ruddy, was of ruddy character, like good looking, but you know, kind of a messy, a, a man of the earth, if you will. And what did Samuel say to David's father? The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man, have you ever, have you ever experienced that? How much a black heart can impact how we actually see people physically. I once worked with a girl who was a model. And I remember Darcy seeing her when she dropped me. We were newly married. And she was, I mean, she was taller than me. And she, and she was, by all categories, you know, cultural categories, beautiful. And Darcy's like, that girl is so beautiful. And I was like, I just don't see it. Because she was so mean. <laughs> so all I saw was mean. That's it. She was snarky and mean. And then finally, what she was was just slow to trust. And when finally we became friends, and I'm like, all right, I see it. I see it. But I did not see it for months. I'm like, I don't see it. There is nothing attractive about that person. Because her cruelty and her willingness to just say mean things just robbed her of any external beauty. And, and I would argue that the external is directly connected to the internal, because I've also met people that would not be called traditionally handsome or beautiful, but their character is so, so attractive, so beautiful, so vibrant, that it transforms their external. I've seen that. And I think that we need to understand that blessed are the pure in heart, this is 
the heart of the heart. We're told in John, in chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, that he says, listen, unless you are born again, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I've had people say, I don't like that phrase, born again. It's so Christian. Whatever. I don't know what to say to that. It's, it's so Jesus because he said it, but I understand that once again, you were looking at your Christianity through your cultural lens rather than through the scripture itself. Don't let your Christianity be defined by, you know, an early 2000s or what was it, a 90s movie called Saved. It's not going to be beneficial. Uh, so I, I, I think that this, this picture of what Jesus is saying, when he says be born again, even Nicodemus is like, I don't understand what you mean. I can't re-enter into the mother's womb. He says, There's, you need to become a new creation. Well, it's a, exactly what the prophet Ezekiel said. I will remove their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within them. When we read blessed are the pure in heart, we immediately think of moral, behavioral modification. Purity of heart for us. When we talk of purity, generally today, purity culture, as it's often pinned on Christianity, has to do with sexual purity. You know, the, the purity movement uh, of the early 2000s when you had uh, guys like Josh Harris and How I Kissed Dating Goodbye, that seemed to be the definition of purity. But what a two-dimensional vision of purity. And once again, that behavior modification actually led to a lot of hurt where Joshua Harris himself is now turned away from I, a man I know who is honestly one of the kindest and charismatic people I've ever met. I'd love to have a conversation with him now because I haven't talked to him since he abandoned his faith. But so much of it had to do with the guilt he felt over putting out a book that actually caused, in his mind, more harm than good. I don't know if that's an accurate portrayal. I'm sure it helps some. I don't ever am comfortable throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But the fact is, is this, that is not what I would define as purity. I would say that that, that is sexual purity definitely seems to be connected to the idea of sanctification throughout the New Testament because it's an easy thing to identify as one of the ways in which are we going to trust that God's, God's created order is the best way to live or are we going to actually define the created order for ourselves? Sexuality in a hyper-sexualized society, and just so you know, historically the world's been pretty sexual. And I would argue, historically, the world's been pretty sexually deviant. But we don't need to return to the Victorian age. <laughs> and we definitely still need to understand that we are the products of Puritans. The Puritans came to America to get away from persecution. And I think that the church is still dealing with what I would call a Puritan hangover. Because so much, which is so crazy because the Puritans came out of the Reformation, which believed that salvation is a total gift from God, and yet they still managed to create ladders for people to climb. And so now it's like, well, I'm going to tell you exactly what it means to be pure of heart. It's going to be, you're going to be like me, which is you don't look at a woman for, you know, more than 1.2 seconds. You know, back then it was like, you don't show your ankle bone. <laughs> like, what? 
Isn't it funny that the moment we have to, if the moment you have to define what it means to be pure in regards to modesty or any of those things, it's like, who in this room is going to be comfortable defining those terms today? No, purity has to do with perfection. But for perfection, pure, I would argue, blessed are the pure in heart, speaks to this. What we need is a new heart. And I think a more accurate definition is to be single-minded. The pure in heart are not perfect. The pure in heart are those who have a single focus, a central compass for their lives. The cross is the center of their existence. Jesus is the thing that matters the most. And yes, there are so many problems in our lives, but I think the pure in heart are not those that are without sin. The pure in heart are those that understand they're sinners and just cast themselves in dependence upon Jesus as their only hope because he is the source of their purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When we live with a single-minded focus on King Jesus, what it creates in us is a sacramental cast. To be born again is to receive the Spirit of God, which is to receive the capacity to know that we are loved by God, and it is to receive the capacity to see others as those who are loved by God. And when I begin to live with that lens, I begin to surprise, see Jesus in everything. When Jesus, it's, it's funny, whatever it is, you know, you, you ever see like the um, those movies or cartoons where someone's stranded in the desert and they see the, the they're, they're so hungry that they start, they start like hallucinating the food that they're, <laughs> they're thinking about. I kind of think that that's what spiritual hunger should lead to, is a hunger to see Jesus and to know Jesus that we think about him so much that we can't not see him. And honestly, people say, how do I know, how do I see God? Well, I think that we're looking, if you're looking for Jesus to, you know, just appear before you in the flesh, I've heard of people saying that they've seen that and I don't deny it, but I haven't had that happen. But I have definitely seen God, sensed his presence. And I have felt it most often when I am living in a moment where I am living fully for him. There are moments where I sense the spirit in a, in a service, whether it's been worship or the preaching of the word. There are times where I'm talking with someone who is hurting. I remember once being in an airport where two elderly people were weeping and I was in a tank top and I looked like a criminal and I just, I could sense that the Lord was telling me that I need to go talk to them. I was a new pastor and I didn't know what was going on and I walked over to them right before I was about to board my plane. I knelt down and I said, I said, ma'am, sir, I, I couldn't, I, I can just see your distress. I can tell that something horrible's happened and I just want you to know, I know I don't look like it, but I'm a pastor and I'm wondering if there's anything I can, I can pray for you. And the woman just reached out and grabbed my hand and she says, our grandson, five years old, drowned yesterday. His dad was untying the boat from the dock and he turned around and his son was gone. And by the time they found him, he had been kind of swept underneath the dock and he, it was too late. And I just knelt down, I put my hands on both of them and I prayed for them. And you know what they saw in me in that moment? Not ragged, tattooed Josh White. They saw Jesus 
saying, I'm with you. It's the same thing I believe my dad experienced as he took his final breaths and he looked into my eyes and I had my hand on his face and I kept telling him, I love him. I'm with you. It's okay. It's time to go. And I watched him go from panic to calm. I don't believe that what my dad was seeing was me in that moment. I think he was seeing Jesus. But you know what I was experiencing? Jesus. This is the power of entering into a world of brokenness with a single-minded devotion that at the end of the day, people aren't projects. They're people, divine image bearers, which should give us a compassion and a grace to move toward them regardless of what, how they respond. Whether it's an enemy or a friend, and honestly, I feel like people can switch. Sometimes your spouse can feel like an enemy. I know that I can probably feel like that to Darcy at times. But the fact is, is that when we live in a, a function of mercy and there's a purity of heart, the heart of the matter is that we keep Jesus the main thing so that we can see him in everything. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the center of the circle. You see, Peace, you know, I love this in Colossians 3.15. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called in peace. When I actually think of what it means to be a peacemaker, you know, shalom uh, conveys the picture of a circle. It's not the removal of conflict. Uh, it's, it means a communal well-being in every direction, in every relation. And the person in the center of the circle is related justly to every point in the circumference. To be peacemakers is not to just simply experience peace, but it is actually to be conduits of that peace. To be not peace-loving or even peace-wanting, which is passive, nor is it peace-living, which is individualistic, but it's on peacemaking, which is intentional, active, social. It's being a peaceful presence in a restless, anxious world. The peace of Christ rule in your heart, I love that in Colossians because we, we're told here where the source is. To turn from evil and do good, as it says in Psalm 34, to seek peace and pursue it is to know this key thing. Ephesians 2, 13 through 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. What a powerful passage. You know, I am a guy who has been diagnosed with general anxiety disorder. And it, in times, a door of hope has been crippling to the point where I almost can't function. And I just want you guys to know that it is possible if you are an anxious person like me. And anxiety manifests in a lot of different ways. Some people, social anxiety, I can't handle being in crowds. Some people, you know, that anxiety manifests in this sense that there's something wrong with your body. You feel sick all the time. There's like this intense feeling like you've got something wrong. Sometimes anxiety just kind of sits under the surface and it just creates this inability to calm down. You know, so people for me are like, oh, you're, you're always happy, you're optimistic, you, you know, you're just, you're maybe just a little manic. <laughs> but for me, manic is actually, if I'm seeming manic to you, it's because I'm really anxious. This is why I feel like throwing up every time I have to preach. I get so stressed out. On Sunday, I'd like feel 
overwhelmed with stress. It's also why I'm a creative. It's like, it's how I've figured out how to channel that energy. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad because often our ways of dealing with our anxiety is not by coming to the source of peace, which is Jesus, but trying to escape our anxiety through the, the many ways that we avoid the difficulties of existence. And our world is incredibly gifted at creating all sorts of distractions. But Jesus is about bringing us into con in confronting us with reality. And he is that reality. And the beautiful thing is an anxious person is nothing has brought me peace like the one who is peace himself. And I just encourage you, if that's something you're struggling with, let other people into it. Because it's not something, you know, we're glitchy people. It's not like Jesus just necessarily, you know, you get saved and all of a sudden all those mental glitches and emotional glitches and childhood glitches just disappear. It just means now you have Jesus and he's grateful when we allow him to be responsible for all of us, which includes the bad. Thank God for the gospel, right? The center of the circle is the center of the storm, and that's where the calm is. It's not the removal of difficulty, it's Christ in the middle of it. Finally, in Matthew 5, verse 10, we have the two kingdoms. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But we must contrast this with Matthew 10, 34, because it also speaks to the previous beatitude. Each one of these are building blocks. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The peace that Jesus brings, the righteousness that we are called to hunger and thirst for is not something that we manufacture in ourselves. It is something that we receive from Christ himself. He is our righteousness, but to allow him to play out his life in and through our lives means we will come into conflict with the world. The sad thing is that we often are struggling and hurt and experiencing conflict for all the wrong reasons. Are you experiencing conflict in your life right now because you're living so fully for Jesus? Or are you experiencing conflict as a Christian because you're busy being a closet Christian, trying to figure out how to live the Christian life in your own strength without having to ever deal with the offensiveness of the name of Jesus? Because it's scary to talk about Jesus. It's easy to talk about God, but there is power in the name of Christ. And Jesus is offensive in our culture. People are offended and they don't even know why they're offended. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of salvation. And yet, for us, the cross is a stumbling block too because the cross continually reminds us that without Christ, we're lost. That we don't get to add to what he did. We get to work from his total and complete victory. That's why he says in the close, lays down what I call the coupe de grace, which is that Latin phrase for the blow of mercy or a mercy blow, a mercy kill. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
What did Jesus say in John 15, verse 18? If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. What we need to understand is that all people may be drawn, but not everyone responds the same. And some people are offended and say, I want nothing to do with that, and it will bring you into conflict with the world. But the, the goal of the Christian life is not to live a conflict-free existence. Our goal as Christians is not to function under the radar and the question is, is there anything in your life that actually speaks to your faith in Jesus? Would other people, do people see the reality of Christ's love being played out in your life? And don't, don't throw Francis of Assisi at me. You know, you know, love God and love others. Use words if necessary. Unfortunately, we're told that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And mowing your neighbor's lawn is not going to prove to anyone that you follow Jesus with any kind of tenacity. Now, I'm not saying go out and be obnoxious. And there are ways of meeting people where they're at, knowing how to engage. I taught at a high school camp. I'll close with this story. I taught at a high school camp this summer. I don't know why I said yes. And there was a group of boys there um, that were very unruly. And, uh, and they're their group leader, which was a good Christian kid going to seminary, and he was serving at this camp, and he could not handle them, and so he just kicked the boys out of the group. So these boys were just like wandering around at this youth camp, like kind of like wreaking havoc everywhere they went. And I was like, I like these kids. They're funny. They remind me of me, because I was the kid that brought acid on my youth mission and, and took it to go to a concert of Michael W. Smith, which did not enhance the concert on any level. In fact, it was weird. Michael W. Smith's performance had this strange sobering effect on me. <laughs> it's like all the drugs effects just went away and then I was just deeply sad. <laughs> so mean. Um, <laughs> I, so I, I, I'm, here I am with these boys and they're just like, they're trying to shock me. This one kid, I don't believe any of it. I think, I'm like, okay. Yes, and? and they're like, what do you think of Kendrick Lamar? And this is one of their ways of getting at the group later is they would throw out these pop reference cultures, cultural references, and, like, and he didn't know what to say because he didn't know what they were talking about. He's like, I don't know. What do you think of Hillsong? And they're like, what? Um, and so I'm like, I, what I did, I'm like, oh, man, I just got that Kendrick Lamar record. I haven't listened to it yet. I go back to my room. I listen to it. I digest it. I read through all the lyrics. I go to it, I'm like, I like track four, I like this, this lyric. What do you think he's saying here? Because to me, it sounds like he's talking about Jesus. Meet them where they're at, bring them back into the conversation. Again and again. They even got me to say the dumbest thing when I was preaching, just to see if I was, you know, on their team. So they made me say the phrase with no explanation, jits trippin' in the middle of my sermon. And I said it, and they were just like, yeah, oh. and like, it's like, and then what happens? I lead one of them to the Lord that night. It's not rocket science when you just meet people where they're at. We don't have to be cultural gurus to do that. It's just we pay attention. We listen to what they're saying. We, we're, we're empathetic. We don't make them feel like projects. We just love on them. I, I told one of the boys, I'm like, I don't care if you believe. I just like you. I like you. You remind me of myself. I want you to know the Jesus that I love, but it's okay that you don't feel that way. 
I'm not going to stop talking with you because of it. You see, this is the reality of the Beatitudes. When you know that you are lost without Jesus, it allows you to enter into the world of the lost with compassion and mercy. Are you willing to experience the rejection of the world for the love of Jesus? Because the love of Jesus is also the thing that will draw the world. And our heart should be that all come to know him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you for the power to share your love, to know you, to walk with you, to experience you. My prayer today is that there would be a boldness that comes into our lives that flows out of a willingness to stand in the gap as your representatives in this world. That, Lord, we would be marked by mercy, not judgment. That we would be pure in heart, single-mindedly focused on the goodness of who you are. That we would bring peace to an anxious world because you are our peace. That we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, be filled, and that we would be persecuted for the right things because we're so close to you that your light becomes a revealer of those around us. I pray that it would be your love in us that offends, not our self-righteousness. Lord, may we walk through this world in humility and may we be granted the ability to see people where they're at. Lord, may we be identified with you and may we not despair when people come against us because of our faith, whether it's family or friends or coworkers, but I pray that we would just graciously continue to pursue the gospel of grace and the lives around us. We pray these things in your name, amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopedx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.